You know, the risk you run when you let a ball mm -hmm. bounce twice is you don't know what it's going to hit and where it's mm -hmm. going to go. So there's this chance where you try to play that little gamesmanship and you end up getting nobody out because the ball kicked 20 feet away because it hit a rock or something, right? What's up, Deadhead Crew? Ed here. And on this episode, I am taking you guys to school. That's right. We are learning a little bit of history about old-time baseball. That's right. The original rules, how they were done, uh, the kind of baseball that they were using, the bat whether or not they use a glove and when did they use a glove yep all of that i sat down with corky gaskell he's a historian he's also a awesome dude who makes some uh, baseballs by hand guys that's right we go all into this baseball in this part one right because i had to break it down because there's a lot of information and i just couldn't just delete a lot of stuff so but let me tell you guys you guys are going to enjoy it so without further ado i'll give you the episode well, welcome back to yet another episode of the Data Chronicles. My name is Ed, and guys, uh, today I am taking you guys to school. That's right. We are going to learn some baseball. That's right, we are. Uh, and and to, to do so, obviously, that's not going to be me because I am not well-educated when it comes to the history of baseball, so that's why I brought some people over. Uh, today, uh, Corky Gaskell, my friend, you are going to help me understand this beautiful game that we call baseball, where some of the original uh, rules and things like that. And uh, first of all, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I tell you, any chance I get to talk about baseball, it's a good day. It, it really is, isn't it? You know, watching baseball, playing baseball, you know, talking baseball. There's nothing. It's a beautiful thing. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, obviously the way that I, obviously not obviously, but the way that I got in contact with you was through a mutual friend of ours, Andrew Nelson. Um, and I was like, Hey, Andrew, you know, I wanted to get to, to a little bit of a series of, you know, the history of baseball, I want to bring in different people. Uh, you know, do you think you can, you know, help me out with it? He goes, absolutely. I can actually give you a name of the person who can actually help you out better than me. And, uh, here we are. So. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate that, my friend. Uh, so, but let's get started. You know, uh, you know, what got you started with this game of baseball? Like, you know, what was that 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 moment that you said, "Man, this is a fun game." Uh, and are you referring to baseball in general, or baseball with the vintage flair that we play? Let's start with you know, because that you're right. That's a two part question for you. Let's start yeah. with baseball in general, and then we'll go into uh, vintage baseball. Yeah, so so my start in baseball, I guess technically would have been wiffle ball as a oh. kid growing up. Uh, our neighborhood, uh, we had a narrow but long open lot between a couple houses. Mm -hmm. And so the use of real baseball was going to take out too many windows. <laughs> so we chose wiffle ball and um, it it, it was it was fine because we had a bat, we had a ball, uh, we had four bases, and and we played. Um, I was um, I was very short and very fat at that time. I've grown out of that. People look at me and go, "There's no way." Uh, and so, base I I wasn't picked a lot to be on teams, you know, other than football. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved baseball. I mean, I could throw, you know, I could hit. It was just the running part that that made it tough. 
And so because of that, I never really got involved playing in the little league stuff that mm-hmm. we had going on, but I loved it so much. I showed up uh, and I would always help the coach of the local community team. And so as a third grader, as a fourth grader, as a fifth grader, I was an assistant coach basically. Gotcha. And so okay. I was helping shag balls and you know, I would throw some batting practice, you know, whatever it took to help out with this. And so I was always around the game. I didn't play much. Uh, and then in high school, I, I wasn't, there's no way I had grown out of my short fat stage. I was an uh, you know average looking human being then, <laughs> but because I didn't play a lot, I was so far behind everybody else. The only thing I could do was throw really hard, but you know, and I'm not going to compare myself to Nolan Ryan, but when he first came up, he was hitting everybody, right? He was really wild. Yeah. That's, I had no control. Right. And so, um, I decided to get into fast pitch softball. Interesting. Um, and so I could figure that out. You know, I, I could do the wind up, I could pitch and I actually got pretty good at it. Um, and so I, I played some of that when I got into college, I did intramurals. Um, and then when I came, uh, as an adult, got my first job in, in Minnesota, um, and then had kids, I decided, you know, I want to get back into coaching. And so that's what I did. I got into coaching. Uh, and I did that for about 15 years. And during that time, and this is kind of a segue now into the vintage yeah. baseball, um, during during the summers, we would go and watch this local vintage team play. And I we take the whole family, we go and watch. And I'd always tell my wife, you know, when I'm done coaching, this looks like something I think I would enjoy because it's a mix of playing and a mix of some history. And mm-hmm. I just, I, I thought that was interesting. And that's what happened. I finished up coaching contacted the local club, got involved, um, and never really looked back after that. I just, I played, uh, I showed up enough that the the lady in charge of the team made me the captain. I got involved in the national organization, the Vintage Baseball Association, mm-hmm. uh, very heavily. Um, that got asked a few years back to be part of the Rules and Customs Committee, yeah, which is a group of people that research all of the uh, newspapers and stories of the day and try to find out yeah. how they really did it so that we can teach people how the game was played um, with some form of accuracy. You know, we have, we have documentation that says this is what they did. Um, and so, it, like I say, just every year I got a little more involved, a little, little more involved. I got to the point where, and I'll just hold this up. Oh, making, look at that. Look at that baseball. I started making the 19th century baseballs um, that took off. Other teams started using them. They liked them. Um, and so I it's just every year something new is going on where I'm getting more involved, but I'm kind of on the the side going down the hill now where I'm, I'm 62. I don't play as much mostly because people don't want me to play. <laughs> you, get, <laughs> you get to a certain age. It's like, Hey, hey slow down. You know, maybe, maybe you could do this. And so I've been, I got really involved in umpiring since I knew the rules. Yeah. Uh, people from all over the country were inviting me out to come umpire games because umpires are hard to find in our mm-hmm. vintage game. So that's, that's kind of the, the trajectory on trajectory I'm on now is spending more time umpiring, spending more time teaching the rules, teaching people how to make the baseballs and less time actually playing just, you know, for yeah. my own safety too. That's pretty cool though. Like, I mean, there's, 
And, and it's funny, right? Like, I mean, everybody tells you it's like at a certain age, you just stop playing, you just stop doing things. But like, there's always uh, some form of involvement in the sport. And for you, you're, you're like you said, you're teaching now. You're you're doing some umpiring, and you're still teaching people how to make the baseball. Which, by the way, I actually got to feel one of those, uh, and those are super cool baseballs. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's some serious craftsmanship, my friend. Yeah, and it it got me a gig out at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. I got to do a presentation through the Sabre Group Society of American Baseball Research on how to, how they made the baseballs back in the day, and uh, show people all the different because the ball changed sizes over years. Yeah, until eighteen seventy two, and so I would have an example of every year, every type of cover, you know, pretty much anything you could think of. I was making one. Yeah, um, so that was kind of cool. Okay, so so let's talk about that, right? Because there 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 the the evolution of the baseball has has been has gone through a lot of changes over the years until we have what we see, you know, today. Um so the one that you were holding which has the stitching um uh in a crisscross pattern, right? Yeah. Um that one, yeah. Uh, that is like, is that like the the original one or, you know, or, or something like that? It's, it's the most popular they had back in the day. Okay. Uh, modern folks, even though it's, it's an anach anachronism, it's not really, they never called it this. They call it the lemon peel. Okay. I don't, I don't know why, because in my research, I found instances, these articles that talked about how the ball was made uh, as you would cut an orange. So mm -hmm. it should be an orange peel ball. <laughs> right. And I, I don't know how lemon peel came about, but it was never called that back in the day. It was called a star pattern or a four pedal ball. Um, gotcha. Actually, when it first came out, it was just the baseball because there was mm -hmm. no other type of ball made until they came out, you know, with this, you know, what we call a figure eight. Um, yeah. But they called it a continuous seam. It was one continuous seam that didn't have break points like this thing right here at the tip. Right, right at the tip. There's some, that's so, exactly. Yeah. This was the most common. Uh, 1840s and 50s through kind of to the end of the 1860s. And then the continuous senior figure eight ball kind of started to get some momentum and eventually over time kind of took over uh, what they used in the games. But the lemon peel, uh, modern term lemon peel, stuck around uh, even through the 70s and 80s to some degree because they are a lot easier to make. That's pretty cool, though. Like, I, I, I mean, I... I actually like the, you know, the, the, the design of it just because it's different, right? Like you said, the figure eight, everybody knows what it is. It's, it's, it's in softball as well. So everybody knows the, the traditional now that what we call traditional now, but like to, to actually see what, you know, players uh, use. Uh, let me ask you, as far as what materials did they, they use to create that baseball, what was used? So, Prior to 1857, mm -hmm. when we finally got in the rule book, uh, the rules would actually specify India rubber as the as the center, wrapped in yarn, covered with leather. That was really how they listed it from a material standpoint. Okay. But we found uh, articles, newspaper articles, when someone needed a ball they could have cut up an old pair of galoshes and get used that for the rubber. Mm -hmm. uh, and they could have covered it with like a, an old pillowcase or something, you know, whatever they could find just to go out and play the game. 
But when you got into match play, and, and I'll back up a second, there was even an instance for teams that lived near the Great Lakes where they would catch a sturgeon fish, pull the eyeball out of it, and use that instead of rubber because it was the right consistency, the right size, the right weight. It just one of those things I have yet to do. I really hope to someday find a sturgeon fish and pull the eyeball out of it. <laughs> and make it. But, but again, this is just people coming up with ways. I, I need a ball to go play this game. But when you get in and follow the rule book, start getting into match play more, you know, the, I don't want to call it league play because they didn't have that yeah. yet in our era, but it was India rubber, uh, which comes out of a tree. Like we would get sap for maple syrup. You know, they drill yeah. a hole in the tree. It would come out and make a caoutchouc, which is a big chunk of rubber, uh, cut it into strips, wrap it with yarn. And they, they use mostly woolen yarn, but there's references to cotton yarn as well. Um, and then just wrap it with leather, which they started out with sheepskin. Those were coming apart quite easily. And I've mm -hmm. made some with sheepskin. It's too thin mm -hmm. to really hold up. Uh, and eventually they got into horsehide, which was a much tougher material. And the ball started to last a little longer. We have we have documentation as to how they did it, and we know what they did, and that's what I try to follow. Outside of not having a rubber tree, uh, <laughs> that I try to try to follow. So I just that, use rubber bands myself. That's that's pretty awesome, you know. The fact that you actually still to this day are still making them. I just saw a, a tweet that you were on that you were saying that you're you know have thirty something balls already ready to go. Um, and this was back in February for like, you know, for your replica 1860s baseballs, you know, yeah, I've made almost 200 so far this year. Oh my God. Yeah. Once word got out that, that there are teams that really like to portray history. Yeah. And so when they get into these matches with two teams that are really into the history, they want a handmade baseball. Mm -hmm. And there are other people that make them. I've taught, I've taught dozens of people. Um, but some clubs are like, I don't have anybody that wants to make them send me a dozen, send me two dozen, whatever. And, and as long as they give me notice, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And then there's other clubs that aren't as into the history. You know, they just go buy them, you know, from the companies that get them from China. Mm -hmm. They don't care. They look they're They have the look of a lemon peel ball. Um, and and they, they'll probably last a little longer. They might get a better discount on quantity, whatever. Um, but I my focus really thankfully, is those teams that want to portray history a little bit more and have that handmade baseball like they would have used in that day. Gotcha. Honestly, that's pretty cool. I'd rather have a, a handmade one, right? Uh, that's like, you know, that keeping with the historical facts of it. I think that's that that speaks uh, value to that team who is willing to, you know, follow those those guidelines and rules uh, on and on. Um, so mad kudos to those teams that are doing so. Um, okay. So eventually we'll kind of come back to the sturgeon fish thing. Cause that, that's just wild to me. It is. <laughs> it is. I agree. It, it blew my mind when I read it. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, a little bit of the history. Like, you know, um, obviously, and from what I understand, no gloves are used when you guys are playing to keep in, in line with, with that time period uh, game, correct? Correct. So 1850s through uh, the early 1880s, pretty much no gloves. Um, mm -hmm. There were occasions when you'd see a guy with a, 
a glove with like the fingers, like a work glove with the fingers cut out. Mm -hmm. And that was usually because, you know, he injured his hand the game before, but he still wanted to be able to play. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't helping you catch the ball. It was more protecting your hand a little bit. Gotcha. So you might, you might see that. Um, But yeah, 1880s, you started to see gloves, um, but they were basically five fingers, no webbing in between the thumb and the index finger. So again, it was really a, a hand protection more than anything. And some of the players actually, after wearing them, just threw them out and said, it's easier to catch it with your bare hands because those gloves, yeah. if you just picture them being hard leather, a ball hits, it just bounces right away, bounces away. And so you got to have that second hand anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a mix of barehanded and and some form of a glove. But the modern glove that we recognize with the webbing and everything is really a 20th century thing. We're talking 1920s, 1930s, before you come across that. So, yeah. Wow. Um, it, I don't know why it took them so long to figure this out, but <laughs> that's, you know. All, all the injuries that could have been avoided in that time oh, yeah. period. Yeah. That's. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about those rules then, um, because obviously there is a lot of things that are very different in in your in, in the game that you play uh, in your umpire compared to today's game. Uh, in in your opinion, which ones are some of the ones that are noticeably totally different than the game that we see today? Okay, so I'll uh, I'll focus first on you know, 1858 through about 1864 in that era. Okay. Um, a ball, a ball that's caught on one bounce mm-hmm. is an out. So okay. if you hit a ball, you know, 350 feet, and the outfielder lets it bounce once, and he catches it, you're out. Okay. Uh, same as if he caught it in the air. Um, if you hit a ground ball to short or second, you know, we're we're trained in our modern game: run as fast as you can, run through that base, beat that throw. Yeah. In our game, if you run past first base, they can tag you out, just like any other base. So that's tricky because, especially for older folks, to get up speed and then start to slow down enough to stop. to be able to stop on that base. Now, obviously, if you hit one in the gap, you round the base and you can go and you can come back. But as soon as you go past that base, you're at risk to be tagged out. Um, so that's that's a little different. Okay, so so you don't go straight like you know how we do now. Like we go straight and then uh, and you touch base, first base, you go straight. That's still you're still considered safe. Yeah. Um, but you can't do this in, in this game. Like you literally have to stop at first base or run the risk of being tagged out. Right. Yeah. Okay. Once you go past the base, you got two choices, try and, you know, sneak your way back to the base or just take off for the next base and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to do that before they tag you, of course, but okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's the idea is you're kind of in this uh Oh land. <laughs> Uh oh, <laughs> and and I, I I tell people this my very first at bat in the vintage game and I had zero training when I took my the field for the first time uh-huh. because of the timing of everything I had just got done coaching and what do I teach these kids run through the base I ran through the base I beat the throw and I was so excited and then I got tagged out and I forgot <laughs> all about it <laughs> I'm just like oh yeah <laughs> oh no, my bad guys sorry. And they all laughed. They all laughed at me. And that's what's nice about most of the vintage, you know, teams is that yeah. you made a fool of yourself. They'll laugh with you, right? They'll laugh at you. They'll laugh with you because yeah. they've all done it, right? This isn't 
I'm not like the first person to have ever done it. Right. This like, is like, oh, this I is your remember when I did that once. <laughs> <laughs> so it's I'm part of like it's part of the initiation of, of exactly. part coming into your game. Exactly. And I and I've got guys that have been playing for 15 years that every once in a while they get off that base and then they're just like because <sighs> a lot of them will play softball or they're playing something else where they're they just gotta turn on that 1860 brain and and for that game. Yeah. That's hard to do. It is, it's hard to do. That's awesome. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. I think that's that's one of the coolest things I've heard so far. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the pitching is underhand. Um, you okay. can pitch it. You can pitch it like you'd see in a softball game. Okay. Uh, and that's how it kind of started when the teams were more social clubs, just playing for exercise. Yeah. But in the in the mid 1850s, the game started to turn somewhat competitive. Pitchers were looking for a way to get an edge, and then you saw them pitch a little bit faster. They put yep. a little more speed on the ball. You couldn't wind up like fast pitch. It's bring your arm straight back and whip it as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you saw teams starting to do that. Either either way is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to tell people, try and do a mix. Don't just continually softball pitch. Mm-hmm. But what we find is there's some teams that's all they can do. Mm-hmm. If they try to throw it fast, it goes all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, there's this fine line of keeps the game moving. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, still trying to show some of the historical aspects of the game. Right, right. Um, in eight, uh, starting in 1858, uh, you could start, the umpires could call strikes on a batter, but only after a warning. And the, the batter would have to be purposefully, purposefully letting pitches go by, good pitches go by, like to try and let, like run around base, steal a base. Yeah. And then the umpire could say, hey, that's after two of those, I'm warning you, the next one's going to be called strike if they throw a good pitch. Gotcha. But they had to be warned first. Huh. They couldn't warn the pitchers. They didn't start doing that until 1864. And okay. so what had happened from 58 to 64, in order to try and catch the runners stealing, the pitchers are doing pitch outs, if you will, what we call a pitch out. Right. They called it back then pitching to the catcher where the catcher would set up outside yeah. and hope that the runner would try and go and it was easier to throw him out. Well, there was no penalty. You could do that five times in a row. There's no balls called. Right. It's just making the game last longer. So in 64, they, they allowed calling of balls. And then in 64, it was three three balls and or three strikes. Mm. Um, for three balls, you would get your base, three strikes, you're out as long yeah. as the catcher caught the third strike cleanly. So, um, and then in 65, they got rid of the bound rule. The ball had to be caught on the fly in fair territory for the out, but they would allow a bound rule for foul balls. They were trying to discourage foul balls. Um, foul balls used sometimes ended up somewhere and he had to go look for a ball kind of thing. Game and stoppage and stuff like that. Right, yeah. They didn't, they didn't come with, 45 dozen baseballs to a game, you had one baseball for the most <laughs> part. Even if the ball started to fall apart until it was like unplayable, you just kept going. And so it, so, uh, but the foul balls on the bound, that's, that lasted, I think, till the 1890s. So it lasted a long time. Oh, wow. The, the foul ball on the, on the bound out. Uh, what else? Um, Interesting. So let me ask you that because obviously you're you're up to already into the 1890s, and 
um, from from what I understand, is it's it's three balls still, uh, and three strikes. Uh, where in you know in from your research and everything, where did the fourth ball come into play? Yeah, so they they experimented quite a bit over the years. Um, they actually in one year, I don't remember which it was. It was nine balls and three strikes. Holy moly! Uh, but they you know there was six. You know, it, it kind of they experimented for a long time. In 18, boy, I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway. In 1887 or 88, they went to uh, four strikes. The only year that there wasn't three, they said, let's try four strikes. I think it was five balls and four strikes. And then the following year, either 88 or 89, it went to four balls and three strikes, and and it stayed that way. Okay. Yeah, so – over the first, you know, 30 years of the 20 to 30 years of the game, they were trying all sorts of things. Uh, they even initiated terminology of a of a wide or a uh, unfair pitch or, you know, so there's all these different terminologies where if it's only three or four inches off the plate, it's fair, but it's not a strike and it's not a ball. But if it, you know, so there was there not really was a lot was of a experimentation. So some pitches were not a ball or a strike and it would just be close enough, but not right where it needed to be. If it didn't hit the ground in front of you, if it wasn't over your head, if it wasn't behind you kind of stuff, they tended to not call a ball. They would just, they would just say that's a, you know, a no call, if you will. Yeah. So it, it was really hard for umpires in that era. They, matter of fact, they initiated 1858 calling strikes, 1864 calling balls, but it wasn't until 67, 68, where the umpires actually did it consistently. There were more oh. umpires doing nothing than there were umpires calling balls and strikes when they were asked to by the rules. Because it was just like, wow, every umpire could be different. Why do we, why would we do this? Uh, yeah. You know, they sort of rebelled against the. There was no uniformity when it came to the actual rules of what a ball or strike was considered. Yeah, because there was really no definition of a, a zone per se. Yeah. Rules just stated for the striker and it's close to over the center of the plate. So there you go. <laughs> go ahead. Have fun. To, yeah. <laughs> Good luck to you. <laughs> yeah, go get him. <laughs> Don't hit it down the middle because you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, that, that was a, you know, from an umpire standpoint, I, I have a method. But what I do before each game, I get the captains together and say, here's what I'm doing. All right. Here's what I'm doing. So everybody knows. Yeah. This is what's going to happen. And there's not this hesitation of what's he going to say here? What's he going to say there? I try to be as consistent as I can with what I told those guys I'm going to do. And then the game goes pretty smooth after that. That's pretty cool, man. I like that. And and the fact that you know that we were just talking about that, the fact that you are maintaining that history right because also your organization you're from the team that you're part of right i believe it's the roosters correct correct you are also a part of a uh, a group that teaches the game and it's a historical game while it's you know playing the game and then teaching the history at the same time correct correct well i teach it to those that want it some people tell uh-huh. me some people tell me to my face, go to hell. I don't care. That's not what they're there for. Right. Um, and I have to learn who, you know, who's who wants to learn, who's just there to play and have fun. 
and and they're they're all kinds of people, all different teams, all over the country. Mm-hmm. And I, I've kind of got it figured out now as to who wants help, who doesn't. Yeah. And I try to focus my energy on those that really wanted to get a more accurate game being played. Ah. Uh. I know I would love to do that. Are you kidding yeah. me? Just, you know, I just looked. There's really no team here in North Carolina that's really doing any of that right now. So I got I to gotta keep looking because uh, I'm going to find one for sure. They, uh, uh, they have an occasional game in North Carolina, but I think the closest to you is probably Wythe, Wytheville, Virginia. Oh, wow. I don't know how far that is from, from Okay. You. I will look. I'm, I'm in the Raleigh-Durham area, so okay. I will keep looking. Um, okay, so what are all the rules um, that are are different than um, – how about the home run ball, right? Because it's really – you know, early on, there was really no definition for what a home run was. Yeah, well, the, yeah, there generally weren't fences. Yeah. Right? It was uh, – the first time they brought fences into play, it wasn't to distinguish a home run. It was to keep people out until they paid to come in. It was a way to collect a fee. And so there's instances um, into the 1880s where a ball over the fence might be a ground rule double because that fence is 250 feet away. I'm just using that number as an example. Yeah. If the fence was 275, you would get a triple. If the fence was 300, you'd get a home run. So it depended on the distance of the fence. And again, I can't remember the actual distances, but it was yeah. to that effect. Before that, when there were no fences, you had a you had two types of home runs. You had a home run and you had a clean home run. So what is the first one? The home run. Think of T-ball. A guy hits a grounder to yeah. the pitcher who overthrows first base, who overthrows second base, who overthrows third base, who can't get it home, and the guy scores, right? Yeah. That's a home run. Ah, okay. Now, the next kind is you hit the ball over everyone's head and you score before the ball gets back in. There's no errors or no muffs on the play. That's a clean home run. Mm -hmm. That's how they distinguished uh, back in the day. So, yeah, there was no automatic. That's a home run. It was hit the ball and run no matter what. Yeah, and good luck. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You better get to home if you want to make it a home run. Right. Right. All right. Okay. Uh, all right. So what are the um, rules um, that are, uh, as far as you're concerned, that are totally different than than today? Obviously, yeah, we've so, already talked about it. There's no gloves. Right. We don't you guys are not using any gloves. Um, the the ball is totally different. Um, what about the bet? Is the bet different than than what it what it is now? In a, in a way, yes. And so bats today tend to have thinner handles and a formation of like a barrel, what we would call a barrel. Yeah. Uh, the bats in our era generally from the barrel to the knob is kind of a straight taper. It's a, it's not constant two and a half inches all the way, but it, it's, it's straight with its taper. There's no formation of a barrel. Okay. Um, the only restriction on the bat up until 1868 was the barrel was two and a half inches. It didn't matter how long it was. As a okay. matter of fact, and when I tell you this, you'll understand it. In 1868, they said, ooh, 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 we got to limit the length of these bats. These guys are bringing big bats up. And so they made a limit. And I'll just let you guess, what was the limit in inches? What was it? I I, I, I will get it totally wrong. So I'm not even No, gonna... it's fine. I'm just curious what you would think. 
so 24? Well, a modern bat today is probably 33 to 34 inches. Oh, okay. So a little bit bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. So they limited it to 42. Oh, so what remember. does that tell you they were using before? The, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So these things were massive. Oh, yeah. And they were referred to sometimes as as tree branches and, you know, hunks of lumber. I mean, they were just they didn't understand bat speed, right? Exit velocity. Those things weren't around, right? No, they didn't but, exist. Any of that, the the, the stuff, yeah. the statistic that we have today. It was give me the biggest thing you can find and I'm going to swap, swap that ball with it. And so um, it's most clubs that play today are using 33, 34 inch bats, right? They, it's difficult. And, and I'm not going to say everybody because I, I have a good friend of mine who will bring a 48 inch bat to the game and he'll swing it and he'll do, he'll do just fine with it. Matter of fact, he has for fun, a 65 inch bat that he has <laughs> swung. Um, but as long as the barrel was two and a half or less, it was all legitimate at that time. My, my concern with that is, and I'm sure there's, it happened a lot is that what happened with the catcher, you know, who was sitting behind you yeah. know, trying to catch this thing. It was like, you got to be careful not to get, you know, into a concussion or get knocked out because you're trying to catch a ball. Yeah. Now, now one thing, and that, that's a good point because the catchers in this game did not have to, they didn't squat right behind the plate. Yeah. You would stand 30 feet back. Oh, you better. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> on any, no matter who's batting. Okay. What you're trying to do now is if they hit a foul tip backwards, and you catch it in the air or on the bounce, they're out. Oh, that's right. That's right. So, that one bounce rule comes yeah, into so play. So if you're right next to the batter, that it, does, it hits you in the face before you can catch it. Mm -hmm. So the catchers would would kind of crowd. They wouldn't squat down. They just kind of hands on knees, kind of position yeah. ready, and they'd be back. And so you see a guy with a 65 inch bat, you're already back pretty far anyway, right? The only time you would move up. If they got a runner on base and now you want to try and throw them out, you can't be 30 uh -huh. feet back. Okay. Now you got to move up. And when that guy comes to the plate with that big bat, you're like, uh oh. <laughs> nope, going back. <laughs> I'm going back a little bit, right? Yeah. So, um, I want to keep playing a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. But one, one of the other rules that's really fun it, to me uh, a ball is determined fair or foul based on where it hits the ground first. So the example I use is I'm batting and I hit it and it lands right in front of home plate with some spin and it spins back past the catcher. Yeah. It landed in fair territory first. So that's a fair ball. Wait, what? So if I, or I, or if I swing yeah, and you don't want to do it on purpose because it wasn't a tactic yet, you swing and it, and you just happen to hit it. So it lands right by the third base foul air foul line area and kicks into the what we would call the dugout area yeah take off running because it hit the ground in, in fair, fair territory, territory first so there wasn't this rule where it had to go past third base or first base in foul in fair territory where did it hit the ground first and that's how you determine and the the easiest way to understand it or, or know what to do is the umpire will only call foul balls if he says nothing it's a fair ball. Saying fair ball. Gotcha. So if you hear nothing, you just take off running. It doesn't matter what you think. It could be six inches foul as you saw it. He didn't say it. Yeah. You run. Got you just take off running. If you hear it, then you know, stop. Gotcha. So 
interesting that always gets people sometimes too because they hit it and think oh that's a foul ball next thing you know they're out at first base and they're like what (laughs) (laughs) like hold on a second it's it's a foul ball what are you talking about is it so yeah that's another thing for the umpires that really have their eyeballs where did that ball land right you know you got to be able to see that that it landed fair and then after that it doesn't matter what happens so and like you were saying, you you alluded to this a little bit, but like there, I'm sure some gamesmanship came into play or try to hit that ball doors, like you said, like the third base should try to get it to dugout so that way, you know, creates a little bit more confusion at that point and gives you more of an opportunity to go to first base at that point. Yeah, so uh, it it was the late, very late 1860s, and some will say even the early 70s. I think the gentleman's name was Dickie Pierce. Who, who perfected it. He could swing his bat down, hit that ball into the ground right in front of home plate, and it would kick off into the, you know, past third base. And he would, you know, he'd easy, have an easy double. Yeah. The guy has to go chase it down. And so the issue we have is teams that play in the early 60s are now trying think that's cool and trying to do it, but they didn't do it. Yeah. Right? it, it happened naturally, you know, and then this this Dickie Pierce guy said, you know, I bet I can make that happen unnaturally. <laughs> I can just do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep practicing. I'm gonna get it. Yeah, and he and the, the the story I call it the story because I don't know if it's really really true, but he led the league in batting average for many years by doing that. And when they outlawed it, he didn't. <laughs> you know, because that was all he knew how to get on. Yeah, but, that was his that was his game right there. Yeah. Like, you know, then you take the game away. Now you don't you, you're not a good hitter anymore. Well, yeah. considered a good hitter anymore. So that that was one of my research check marks I got to do is, is that is that really true? <laughs> you know, but it's one of those things that it's fun to tell the story because you hope it's true. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it's like, up, you know, in lore or anything like that, that's pretty cool. Just to think it's like, you know, this is something that, you know, compared to what we think about gamesmanship today's game and everything right uh, i was like you know you know when a pitcher is tipping the pitches in and you see the dugout trying to you know tell the batter and all that but now this is just like literally one of the early versions of the game and like, i'm gonna make sure that since this is considered a fair ball i'm gonna try to hit it in there and then off i go yeah and there's there's other instances of of gamesmanship and i think that's probably the right word is that you know there was no infield fly rule uh, that didn't come about until the 1890s, and it was really a poorly written one then when they did. But <laughs> so if there's runners on first and second, and there's a pop fly to a shortstop, yeah, he can choose to let it bounce twice, and then try to turn a double or triple play off of that, right? Because there's no nobody's automatically out. So as a runner, you got to watch him and say, what's he going to do? What's <laughs> he going to do? You know, the risk you run when you let a ball mm-hmm. bounce twice is you don't know what it's going to hit and where it's going to go so there's this chance where you try to play that little gamesmanship and you end up getting nobody out because the ball kicked 20 feet away because it hit a rock or something right yeah Um, but there's some of that that goes on how do i how do i since there's no rule against it how do i use that to my advantage Um, and you'll see people try and do that and some know how to surround it but you got to let it bounce twice before 1864 because or before 1865 because once you catch a ball on the bounce the runners now are no longer obligated to try and go to the next base they can go back yeah because you already um, caught the out yeah you already got the out and so um you gotta let it bounce twice in order to pull it off 
once you get to 1865, it's only got to bounce once, and then it's easier to pull off because now you get it on the bounce and you just get it to the bases you need to. Yeah. To get, the, get the outs. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I like, I like, I like the gamesmanship of it, right? You got oh, me, yeah. you're, there's, cause there's ways that you could just try to get over another team with you to win. Oh yeah. And there's, there's more of them. The, the one, the one instance where I saw the other team absolutely come unglued, but it was because they didn't know. Yeah. I like, didn't know this rule. So the bases were loaded and nobody was out and the batter the batter was known to be a weaker batter and yeah. there was a really good chance he was going to strike out. Okay. But the catcher knew this. So when the third strike swinging strike happened, he let the ball bounce twice. Cause if he catches it on one bounce, the, the batter is out. He yeah. let it bounce twice, stepped on home plate, threw it to third, who threw it to second, triple play, inning over. And so <laughs> letting it bounce twice, it forced the batter to run, even though the bases were loaded on a missed third strike by the catcher, you have to run no matter what. And since the bases were loaded, everybody had to run. Oh my God. So it was, it was just one of those. And they're all standing on their bases. Like what the hell just happened? And when oh, the umpires, how do we go from no loss to triple A and just one yeah. play? So the umpires explained it and they came unglued. I, I wasn't the umpire that game, but. <laughs> um, yeah, and it was just like, hey, hon, this is a rule. This is how. Well, no one told us. Read the rule book. The rule book. There's a reason <laughs> why we read a rule this book. Is, this is education now. And so my my only thought was, now that team's we got to pull that off now. We're going to do that to somebody. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. They were <laughs> we're like, going to okay, get even. <laughs> just wait until it's our turn to pull this off. Yeah. And so yeah, there's things like that where, for the most part. If everybody knows what's going on, is you just kind of go, oh crap, you know, <laughs> right. they, they got us good, right? You take it in stride. Yeah. But there's still people that have a little bit too much competitive spirit that get angry. Mm-hmm. And that defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to show with, you know, through education and whatnot. Sometimes you're gonna get you're gonna get one that you don't like. And you just got to smile and say, yeah, they got us and move on. But yeah, they got us on this one. We'll get them next time. Yeah. That's cool though. Like, I mean, I I would love to see something like that in, 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 in person just because right. We're so used to the, 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 the new version of baseball, what we are seeing every day on TV and at the ballpark that to see something different, historical, right? Like the origins of baseball, it get it, it has a little bit of a different meaning to it. Yeah. That's amazing. I hope you guys enjoy that episode with Corky. Well, actually, part one, because you know part two is coming next week. So make sure you guys are tuning in for that final episode that we're going to continue on the history uh, and obviously my famous, not so famous questions. So in the meantime, between now and when the second episode uh, releases, my man sells the baseballs. I bought two already, guys. I have two of them that are going into the office and display. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, He will send you a kit if you want to build it yourself so absolutely uh, take advantage of that uh, make sure you guys are following he's on twitter facebook make sure you guys are following him because he put some cool stuff out there and then uh, obviously i'll let you know that uh, i uh, i am going to try to build one 
I cannot guarantee that it's going to come out, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, and then uh, make sure you guys are following the podcast. I'm on uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, even on TikTok as well, guys. So uh, until then, keep on grinding and always support the minor leagues. See ya.